Our gracious Heavenly Father, once again we come before You just being reminded of Your goodness, being reminded of the gift of Your Son. As my brother Tim Bowen said, we are the beneficiaries of Your goodness and Your love for us. May we never forget that Christ truly is the reason for the season, not only during Christmas time, but every single day of our lives. Help us to exalt Him. Help us to make much of Him. Pray that this morning we would do that even through the preaching and application of Your Word. Help us to have soft, tender, teachable hearts as we look into Your Word. Help us to remember that this is Holy Scripture. This is Your self-revelation. When we come into Your Word, we come to know who You are. Even as we'll learn this morning, we pray that You would bless our time. In Jesus' name, Amen. We'll open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Verses 1 through 4 is our passage for this morning. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. And I'm going to read this text for us, okay? This is the Word of God. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as He has inherited a more excellent name than they. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. You know, the holidays are a very interesting time for some people. Actually, for most people in our country. Stats show that the holiday season is the time when many people tend to get especially sad, especially sorrowful, dispirited. Many people getting depressed living very, or thinking very hopelessly. Many people get very disillusioned with life. They're filled with maybe feelings of guilt, of uh, rejection, of regret, as they contemplate the past few years of their lives, or maybe their whole life. And in fact, suicide greatly increases, increases, as many of you know, during the holiday season, during Christmas time especially, and the new year. But the holidays, in addition, are also a time when many people seem to get in touch with the spiritual side of life. A time when maybe they get very contemplative about the higher things of life, so to speak. And significant questions arise in people's minds, such as, what am I doing here in this world? What is the meaning and the purpose of life? And does God really exist And if He does, what is He like? Can I truly know this God? And more importantly, has this God revealed Himself to me and to this world? And maybe you're listening today, present or by live stream, and you're asking some of those questions right now. You're asking real, profound, deep questions about the meaning of life, about spiritual matters, about things that transcend the physical realm, 
Maybe that is you this morning. And I want you to know that the answer to those questions, especially the last two questions about God and whether He has revealed Himself to us, are really answered for us in these verses. You know, we don't know for sure who wrote the book of Hebrews, but we do know that he wrote primarily to Jewish Christians in the first century, Jewish followers of Christ who had professed Christ, who were in danger of going back to Judaism, going back to the Old Covenant, going back to their old way of life before Christ, going back to seeking to earn the favor of God by their own good works and their practice of Judaism. And so the writer of Hebrews then writes to remind these Jewish Christians primarily of the greatness and the supremacy of Christ. That Christ is greater than the Old Covenant. That Christ is greater than Moses, the key figure in the Old Testament. That Christ is greater than the angels. That Christ is a greater high priest That Christ is a greater mediator. In fact, He's the only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That Christ is one who has inaugurated a greater covenant. The covenant that is the new covenant as opposed to the old. And He warns them again and again, does the writer of Hebrews, that in light of the supremacy of Christ, His message is this, don't even think about going back to Judaism. Christ is all you need. Christ is sufficient. And when we say that Christ is sufficient, we mean that Christ is enough, is his message to the audience in the book of Hebrews. And right off the bat, in these verses that I just read for us, verses 1 through 4, we see the author of Hebrews emphasizing the the greatness of Christ and the supremacy of Jesus. What a fitting emphasis for us as well, in the light of what we celebrate called Christmas. Amen? And so I want us to look at these verses, these four verses, under two primary headings. Okay, if you're taking notes, our first heading is God's first word in the Old Testament. God's first word in the Old Testament. Notice how he opens in verse 1. Not typical of... or. Uh, different than the typical letter, he doesn't have an, he doesn't mention an author. He doesn't identify himself, whoever he is. There are no recipients, not even an explicit purpose as certain letters might have. He simply begins with God's past revelation, with mentioning the fact that God has spoken from long ago. Look at verse 1. God after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. Stop right there. He's going to talk about Jesus, the Jesus that we celebrate during Christmas time. But he begins essentially by reminding us of the fact that the story of Jesus didn't begin in Bethlehem. It began long, long ago. God has revealed Himself from long ago. And I want you to notice three things here about God's past revelation, about God's first word in the Old Testament. First, notice that the speaker of this past revelation is specifically God the Father in this context. God the Father has spoken from long ago. You know, at this time, 
This was a Greco-Roman world where in that context in first century, in the first century, there were so many gods and deities that people worshipped. But the author of Hebrews tells us that different from those so-called gods of that world, the Christian God, the God of Christianity, is a speaking God. He's a God who reveals himself to people. He's different than the pagan gods. You know, from ancient times, the, the gods of the nations were either A, gods who were weak and impotent, no better than human beings, or B, gods that were so beyond us, so inaccessible to us, that they could not be known by human beings. By contrast, he says, the writer of Hebrews tells us that the God of Christianity from long ago has been making himself known. He's a God who loves to communicate. He's a God who, who delights in making himself known to his creatures, who finds pleasure in people knowing him, his creatures knowing him. In fact, look with me in Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9 and verse 23 says this, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, says or declares the Lord. You see, God delights and takes pleasure in being known and making himself known in all of his infinite glory and majesty. In fact, Jesus described in John seventeen three eternal life as knowing God and Jesus Christ, whom God has sent. This is eternal life, says Jesus. That they might know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so the speaker here is God, the one who initially has revealed himself to humanity. Notice also the, the recipients. To whom has God disclosed himself? It says in verse 1 that he's spoken to the fathers. To the fathers. And that's not strictly just speaking of the patriarchs. Yes, God made himself to, known to individuals like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Joshua. But he also spoke to the Old Testament people, to their ancestors, to the Old Testament saints. All of these individuals in the Old Testament were the recipients of God's self-revelation. Of God's disclosure to man. And then, of course, in addition, we know from the rest of Scripture, the Bible tells us that God also made himself known to all people through his creation, through everything that he's made. That is what we call general revelation, that God has revealed himself generally through everything that we can see through all of creation. For example, Psalm 19 and verse 1 says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. The psalmist is saying everything that we can see is like a sermon that tells us of God's glory. These 
heavenly entities like the stars and the moon and the planets and galaxies, big things and little things. Contours of atoms and molecules and so forth, things that we can not even see unless we use something to see those things. All of those things declare the glory of God. God is pleased and delights in making himself known. And Romans 1.20 tells us that we can know that there is a God through everything that we can see around us, through everything that has been made. And then notice the manner of his disclosure. How has God made himself known in the past? By what means? Look at verse 1. God has spoken long ago in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways. How has God made himself known in some through the Old Testament scriptures? That's signaled by the phrase there, in the prophets. Through what God ordained, God appointed prophets wrote, God revealed himself. These would include not only, strictly speaking, the Old Testament prophets, but also men in the Old Testament scriptures like Moses and Joshua and David and Solomon, all individuals who penned a holy scripture. And then notice in verse 1, he spoke in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. Very interesting language here, in many portions. Portions has the idea of, of a piecemeal. That God spoke gradually, incrementally, in pieces, in parts, in steps, he revealed himself in many portions. And then he says in many ways, which means that God revealed himself in a variety of ways through story and narrative and poetry and prophecy. And then through a burning bush from Mount Sinai, from a pillar of fire by night. And a cloud by day. He spoke in many portions and in many ways. Think of this as a, as a four-course meal where, where you're served an appetizer and then a soup or salad. And at the end, you're going to get a dessert. But you understand that the main course is what you anticipate, right? That is what the Old Testament is like. There was revelation, but you knew that there was the main course coming. That in seed form, there was someone greater that was to come that would be revealed later on. And so that's the idea here. That the best was yet to come. Yet God revealed himself in the Old Testament. Now, how might we summarize God's Old Testament revelation? How might we summarize God's Old Testament first word, if you will? His initial message to us. You know, this next year... As you've been hearing, we're going to be pushing you all the more this year to make sure that in 2021 that you read through your whole Bible. And we're already pointing you to one particular um, reading plan and then some others that are optional for you if you want to go that route instead. We want everybody to read through the Bible and we're rolling that out already. And I want to encourage you that as you read your Bible in 2021, you need to really hang all thoughts from Scripture on four key words. You need to keep four key words in mind as you read through the Old Testament revelation of God and really into the New Testament. Here are the four words. Ready? Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. 
Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. These, these four words, key words, encapsulate the Bible storyline. They are like poles that you can hang everything on. First of all, creation. God has revealed in the Old Testament that He is creator of a vast universe. That He is displaying His glory through a, a good and perfect world. God reveals that in the early chapters of Genesis, that He is Creator, and that we are His creatures, and that we are the crown of His creation, created in His image, created to live for His glory and to display His glory. We are image bearers of God. God reveals that. Creation. But then came the fall. Then came the fall. And the fall reveals what went wrong in the world. At the first Man, though created in God's image, and the recipient of God's goodness and freedom in the Garden of Eden, sinned and rebelled against God's good and righteous rule. And because of this sin, he was estranged from God. He was separated from God because of his sin. And since that time, since that first sin, every other human being has both inherited a sin nature and pursues a life away from God and from His rule. No one is exempt from this. No one is exempt from this description of sinners and rebels born into this world. Romans chapter 3 tells us that there is none righteous not even one, that there is none who understands, none seeks after God, that there is none who is good, not even one, says Paul to the Romans in Romans chapter 3. This is true of all of us. We are sinners, and as sinners, every person is guilty and stands condemned before a holy and just God, the creator of the universe. And so as you read through the Old Testament... Recognize, beloved, that God's first word, the picture that you get about humanity, is that we are a hopeless humanity. As God reveals Himself in the Old Testament, what we see is a vicious cycle. That person after portion is born, lives, and dies. Born, lives, and dies. There's this vicious cycle of sin and death. Why is this? Why is this? Because the wages of sin is what? Death. Death. And Ezekiel 18.20, the soul that sins, it shall die. And so creation, the fall, this is what God has revealed to us. That He created a good and perfect universe. That all have sinned and have rebelled against Him. That all are hopeless, guilty, and lost. And that none of us are able to save ourselves by our own good works now if this is where everything ended there would be a there would be no christmas right there would be no day in particular of the year but all year long where we would be reminded of our blessed hope if that's where the story ended this is a sad sad news but thanks be to god that coupled with this bad news There was also in seed form good news in the Old Testament, wasn't there? You see, as I said, the Christmas story does not begin in Bethlehem. It doesn't begin in Bethlehem. It begins long ago, also in the New Testament, because in the Old Testament, from long ago, there is promise after promise that is made. 
prophecy after prophecy is made. In fact, conservatively speaking, there are some 300 plus prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus or allusions to Jesus in the future who we now know to be Jesus. One scholar has found at least 550 plus verses pointing to Jesus' first coming. So there's so much about Christ. There's so much about this, this one who would come in the future, who would come from the seed of the woman. In Genesis 3.15, we're given the, the proto-evangelion, the first gospel, the first good news of one who would come from the woman, who would crush the serpent's head. And we now know him to be Jesus. There's a prophecy in Deuteronomy 18.18 about the great prophet. There's the, the uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, the new covenant Illusion of one who would come, who would be a righteous king in the line of David, who would be a, a forever king whose, whose kingdom would have no end. We know who that is. Couldn't have been just a physical king, ultimately. And then in Isaiah 7, Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah told of one who would come and live and, and die and rise again on behalf of sinners in Isaiah 53 and accomplish what none of us could accomplish. And so the point is that there were prophecy after prophecy, scripture after scripture, bearing witness to the fact that there would be this one that would come who is the personification of good news for sinners who are rebels against God and are hopeless. And so listen, even in God's first word, his initial message in the Old Testament, while it included the problem of the fall, it also included in seed form the solution to the problem, and that is the coming Messiah. The coming Messiah. And I don't know about you, but as I pondered this particular passage, and especially God's revelation in the Old Testament from long ago, I was just filled with wonder and amazement. And I was just reminded of the the amazing heritage and legacy that we have in the Christian message. Amen? of the credibility of the Christian message, of the veracity of the Christian message, the truthfulness of everything that God has given us in His Word. You know, on the human level, longevity points to credibility, doesn't it? Longevity tends to point us to credibility. By and large, on the human level, the longer someone's been at something, maybe at a job or a ministry or has been experienced in a particular field or whatever, the more that person has experienced and has been there, the more credibility that person tends to bring to the table, right? Longevity shows commitment. Longevity shows devotion. Longevity shows trustworthiness. It points to, it says something about the character of a person who finishes things, who is in it for the long haul. Well, beloved, if that's true on the human level, how much more on the divine level? How much more on the divine level? That when we ponder the fact that from long ago God has spoken and God's word came to pass, doesn't this speak not only of the credibility and the veracity or truthfulness of the Christian message, but it also says something about the character of God, doesn't it? That He's faithful. That He's true. That He is a God who who keeps His word to us. Who keeps His promises to us. 
And how much this should encourage our hearts to know, brothers and sisters, that in a very uh, a time of a lot of uncertainty, God is trustworthy. The same God who has spoken from long ago and has kept his promise, his promises to us. We can trust him. We can believe in him. We can have faith in him in the midst of difficult times. So God's first word is in the Old Testament. Secondly, secondly, notice God's final word in his son. God's final word in his son in verses 2 through 4. Look at verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, we are in the last days, by the way. Some of you have asked that. Pastor, are we in the last days? The answer is, yes, we are. Not so much chronologically, but theologically, we are in the last days. In these last days, it says, God has spoken to us literally in Son. In Son. Oh, this is so important. In the time where people are want more revelation in light of the things that are taking place. Is there something more? Is there more prophecy? Oh, false teachers right now are having a ball, by the way. So many false teachers are seizing upon the moment to draw people in, naive people in, to tell them about a further revelation that they have from God. Listen, what Hebrews is telling us here, What the writer of Hebrews is telling us is that now, in the present, but in continuation with the past revelation of God in the Old Testament, here it is. God's Son is the apex, the climax of God's communication to a sinless, hopeless humanity in a desperate predicament. It's Christ. Here's where we have the the awesome significance, beloved, of the incarnation of Jesus' birth that we celebrate during Christmas time. Christ's coming to earth is the definitive and final word of God to humanity. Nothing else is needed. No more needs to be said. Christ is enough. Christ. In In the Old Testament, God spoke to us in a piecemeal, if you will then the main course is God's Son. Jesus is the point of it all. All of the Old Testament pointed to Christ. That's why we put it together, right, Ian? A whole concert focused on who? On Jesus. And one of the first things that brother told me a few months ago when they were beginning to rehearse is it's all about Christ. We want to make it all about Christ. Amen. Preach it, right? That's what it's all about. It's about Jesus. He's the point of it all. This is why in Luke 24, after Jesus rises from the dead, it says there that Jesus met some guys traveling on a road to a place called Emmaus. And he said to them in Luke 24 and verse 25, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And here it is. Then beginning with Moses, that's a reference, by the way, to Moses' writings, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And later on in Luke 
24, verse 44, he also mentions the Psalms. What Jesus says to them is, well, if you were paying attention to the Scriptures, you would understand that all of the Old Testament points to me. I am the fulfillment of those things. Christ is the great meta-narrative of Scripture, if you will. Nothing makes sense apart from Christ and Him coming to earth and His incarnation. That's the significance of Christmas, you understand. God is faithful to bringing His Son to earth. Take upon human flesh in fulfillment of His promises. And so all of Scripture points to Christ He's not just one of the key people of the Bible. The Bible is ultimately about Christ. This is why C.H. Spurgeon once said something along the lines of, no matter where I am in Scripture, I make a beeline to Jesus or to the cross or something along those lines. And by this, he didn't mean that every passage... And the Old Testament is directly about Christ, but that every passage ultimately finds its fulfillment in Christ. You remove the incarnation, you remove Jesus coming to earth, those passages don't make sense. They don't. And so again, as you read through your Bibles in 2021, remember... The Old Testament anticipates the glorious incarnation of the Son of God that He might redeem us. But then remember that the New Testament is the presentation of the Son of God. So for instance, the Gospels show us the the perfect life, the suffering and death and the glorious resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And the book of Acts shows us His ongoing work through the Spirit and through the church. And the epistles or the letters are the application of the person and the work of Christ to the individual Christian and to the collective church as a whole. And then finally, Revelation speaks of the restoration of all things. Remember? Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Revelation is the return of the Son of God to judge the living and the dead and to hand everything over to God His Father that God may be all in all. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-eight. That's the end goal of it all. That God, like in the beginning, before the fall, would reign supreme with nobody as rebels against Him. It's all about Christ. It's all about Christ. Don't forget that tonight when you watch the concert together or live stream it, that it's about Jesus. God has spoken definitively and finally in His Son. Now watch this. If He would have stopped there, that would be incomplete, wouldn't it? I mean, lots of people have have sons, Lots of people can claim a final word. So question, what makes this son so unique? What makes him so different so that he is the final word of God? Who is he? Who is this baby that many people sort of leave in the manger in Bethlehem? As this cutesy little Jesus that we hug, right? And it's no more than that. Who is this one who people reject and treat with indifference or profane his name? Let's look at his greatness. Let's look at his greatness. And I want you to look at his greatness under five relationships, okay? Under five relationships. We see the greatness of this Christ. 
First of all, in relation to God. In relation to God, notice in verse 2 that He is the Son of God. He's the Son of God. God is His Father. He is God's Son. Do you know that in the strictest sense, God has only one Son, only one unique Son, and all others are adopted as sons and daughters through the one Son, Christ. He's God's Son. Notice in verse 2, God has appointed Christ heir of all things. He's also the inheritor of all things. Psalm 2 tells us that God has given him the nations as his inheritance. Christ owns everything. God the Father has given everything, including you and I, belong to Jesus. Colossians 1.16 says, All things have been created for Christ. And Jesus put it best in John 17 and verse 10 when he says to the Father, all things are mine and yours and yours are mine. Speaking to the Father, everything that belongs to you is mine, Father, and vice versa. So in relation to God, he's God's son. He's the inheritor of all things. Secondly, in relation to creation, look at verse 2. It says that through Christ, verse 2, through whom also he made the world. Through there indicates agency. And what this means is that there is nothing in the universe of time, consisting of time or space that was created apart from or independent of Jesus. This would make Jesus equally creator. It's just mind-boggling, isn't it? That this one who is the Son of God, who is the creator of all things, came and wrapped himself in humanity, took upon himself human nature, added a human nature to his divine nature, and was born in a manger in a humble place called Bethlehem. Ponder that. Bask in that amazing act of humility by our Savior Jesus, the eternal Son of God who is creator of all things. But it's not just that he created everything. Look down in verse 3. It also says that, that Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. Colossians 1.17 says that in Christ, all things hold together. So not only is Jesus the agent of creation, but he's also the one who sustains creation. He's the one who upholds everything. Every atom, every molecule, every entity, big or small, is a servant of Christ and obeys Christ. As R.C. Sproul put it, there's not one maverick atom in the universe. Not one. Christ rules over everything. I hope you're paying attention. The Son of God, born in a manger, keeps you and I alive keeps this whole universe in its vastness and in its glory from instantly disassembling, from instantly falling apart. He sustains us. He upholds us. Big things and small things. That He's sustainer of everything also means that He's powerfully moving everything toward its proper goal. And what is that goal? The summing up of all things in Christ. And that God may be all in all, 1 Corinthians 15, 28. That God may reign supreme as he did in the beginning of his creation. 
This is why Christ came. That the Father may be all in all one day. Oh, behold the greatness of Christ, beloved. During this Christmas season, where we tend to focus on so many other things, even good and wonderful things, and yet we miss the greatness of Christ. That in relation to God, He's God's Son, He's the heir and the inheritor of everything. That in relation to creation, He's the creator and the sustainer and the upholder of all things. And thirdly, notice, in relation to His being or to His identity, who is He? He's God. He's God. Verse 3. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. I love that. He is the radiance of God's glory. This means that like the rays from the sun that manifest the sun itself, so Christ manifests the very presence of God Himself. Then He says, and the exact representation of of his nature. Notice that. Underline that word exact. He's the exact representation of God's nature. He's not a partial representation. He's not a half representation of God's nature. He's not even a a son who resembles his father. Think about that. On the human level, sons tend to resemble their human fathers, right? Well, that's not what this is talking about here. This is way different. He's not, he's not, Jesus doesn't just resemble the Father. He's the exact representation of his Father. It's different with Christ and his Father. He's the exact image of God. John 1.18 says this, No one has seen God at any time. And here it is. The only begotten God, speaking of Christ, who is in the bosom of the Father, He, Christ, has explained Him. We get our word exegete from that word explained. In other words, the Son exegeted the Father. He showed us God the Father so all could see the glory of the Father. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. What's his point? You want to see God's glory and what God is like? Look at the face of Jesus. Look at Christ, the exact representation of God's nature. That's good stuff, isn't it? That's good stuff. There's so much more with Christmas that we so easily lose sight of, brothers and sisters. You see, that little baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, birthed in a humble manger, born in a little town of Bethlehem, who subjected himself to human parents, who subjected himself to a corrupt government for 30 plus years, has amazing credentials. Behold the majesty and the greatness of King Jesus. Amen? He is great. He is amazing. In relation to God, He's the the Son of God, the heir, the inheritor. In relation to creation, He's the creator, the sustainer, the upholder of all things. In relation to His being, He is God, the exact representation of God. And notice, it's because of His greatness that in relation to the world, fourthly, He alone qualifies to do what verse 3 tells us that He did. When He, Christ, had made purification of sins. you got to understand, the writer of Hebrews here 
is not writing dead orthodoxy. He's worshiping Christ. He says, this one made purification of sins. Let me tell you what God, the creator, the sustainer, the upholder, with infinite privileges did. He made purification of sins. I love that word, purification. It's the word katharismos, from which we get our English word catharsis, which means to, to cleanse, to wash, to purge. The eternal Son of God was incarnated, became flesh, and dwelt among us, died on the cross, so that we who've trusted in Him might be purged of our sins, might be cleansed from our sins, might be washed from our sins. We love the song, don't we? What has washed away my sins? Say it with me. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And then later on he says, Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. What's that talking about? The purging, the cleansing that comes from trusting in the death of Christ and his resurrection. He made purification of all things. He's come to wash us, says the writer of Hebrews. Praise him. Worship him for this. Because it's this cleansing and this purging of our defilement by the Lord Jesus on the cross that removes the barrier by faith between us and God. Because he bore our sins, because Jesus absorbed God's wrath upon himself for our sins, by faith we now have full access, brothers and sisters, bask in this, into the very presence of God, your creator, and we cry out, Abba, Father. Through Christ. Wow. Baby Jesus came to die and redeem us that we might be reconciled to God. That's why Simeon, that priest Simeon, upon seeing baby Jesus in Luke chapter 2 and verse 29, remember what he said? Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant speaking of himself, to depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. And in Luke 2.11, the angel said, For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Bask in the reality this morning that Jesus came to die and deal definitively with sin. That's why he came into the world. To seek and to serve and to save those who are lost. That's why he came. Now it isn't, or it wasn't just his sin bearing or wrath removing death. That is the basis of our hope, right? It's also his resurrection. Look at the end of verse 3. It says that he sat down at the right Hand of the majesty on high. Jesus, having offered an acceptable sacrifice on the cross, sat down upon the highest place of prominence where he lives continuously as high priest to intercede on our behalf. This is unheard of. What it said here about Jesus in verse 3, that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. And no human high priest would sit down and rest. Why is that? You've read through your Old Testament. Because of, of people are continually sinning, right? Sin is never ending. Thus, sacrifices were never ending. So the high priests, human high priests, never sat down to rest. 
Because there always needed to be sacrifices made for the sins of people. But oh, Luke or Hebrews 10, 12 says, but he, Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at God's right hand. Christ sat down. There was no longer any more need for sacrifices to be made. Jesus said, it is finished. It is enough. Praise God. He's the ultimate high priest. And so all of this points, to, points us to his, the greatness of this one who was incarnated, who dwelt among us, so much so that fifthly, fifth in relation to the spiritual realm, notice verse 4 tells us that he's better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. You know those angels, right? Those angels who are powerful, angels who could light up a city and instantly destroy it, such as Sodom and Gomorrah. They're mighty, they're majestic. And the writer of Hebrews says, you know those guys? Those heavenly angels, the, the, those forces to be reckoned with, as majestic as those angels might be, they are not worthy to be compared with the glory of Christ. In fact, angels themselves were at the birth of Jesus, weren't they? They were there. They must have been amazed when they looked down at Jesus. Whoa, there he is. There's our Lord. There's our creator, the one who made us. Can you believe it? Luke 2.14 says that they were singing at his birth, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. They worshiped. They rejoiced at the birth of Jesus. These angels. You know, there were those during that time when Hebrews was written who, who worshipped angels. And it's as if the writer of Hebrews is saying, guys, Jesus is greater, better than the angels. Why worship the creature when you can worship the creator who made the angels? Worship Jesus. Ascribe glory and strength to him. Praise Christ. Not angels. And beloved, that's the challenge for us, isn't it? In life, but especially during the holiday season and during Christmas. The challenge, the challenge for us this Christmas is will we give Jesus the praise that he deserves? Will we worship him for the king that he is? Will we worship his majesty? And as Psalm 2 tells us, will we kiss the Son, worship the Son, pay homage to the Son, because He is worthy of our worship? See, some of us are so distracted with the peripheral, so distracted with the secondary, even things that are not sinful or evil in and of themselves, but they're not the main thing. They're designed in their purest form to point to Christ, aren't they? But we get so distracted with those things. Or some of us are just flat out so indifferent. We're not even intentional or purposeful during these days to focus on Jesus, who is the, the reason for the season. Or perhaps you've just lost sight altogether of what Christmas is all about. We're, in, we're all in different places, aren't we? This is why the writer of Hebrews, look with me in some of these verses. As he moves from here, in light of the greatness of Christ, 
that he keeps pointing them to, he continually cautions his readers about not losing sight of Christ. Look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. He's speaking about what they know to be true about Christ. Some of the we just talked about it. In other words, if you know these things about Jesus, why look for something else? Why go back to what you knew before? Don't do that. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12, look there. He says, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. You know, the living God, if the living God has made himself known to you in his son with finality, keep trusting in him. Don't put your trust in other things that pass away, including for them their works under Judaism and their religious system that ultimately pointed to Jesus who had already come. Don't put your trust in those things. Christ has come. Let not an evil, unbelieving heart dwell among you, says the writer of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 11, notice what he writes there. Hebrews 4, 11, Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. What rest is he talking about? The rest found in Jesus? Our only refuge? Our fortress? Our deliverer? Our only Savior? That rest? Rest upon Jesus, beloved? Not anything else? And then look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 22. He says, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Faith in who? Well, not faith in ourselves. Faith in our circumstances. Faith in our financial situation. Not faith in our faith. He's talking about faith in Christ. The great Christ that he's been expounding upon in the book of Hebrews. Draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith in him. Worship the one who has come who came to die for your sins. Keep on keeping on in the faith, is the writer of Hebrews cautioning his readers again and again and again in the light of the greatness of Christ. To focus on Jesus. This is the message for us as well, brothers and sisters and friends who are listening. Christ, the eternal Son of God, is God's final definitive word for all of us as His creatures, and we dare not ignore Him. We dare not turn our backs on Christ, God's final word. We dare not reject Him. We dare not be indifferent to Jesus. Indifference is equal to hatred and rejection against Christ. And so the question that I have for you, if you're listening today, is this the Jesus that you know? Is this the Jesus in all of his glory and his preeminence that you have personally come to put your trust in? Have you come to believe in this Christ of Christmas? He who became man and died to pay for your personal sins. Have you come to believe in him? Don't let this Christmas pass without putting your trust in Jesus. The only exclusive savior for your sins. And then for us who are in Christ, who repented and trusted in our savior, what a reminder, isn't it? 
Because I've been reminded again and again these past couple of weeks that we have to fix our eyes on Christ this Christmas. And listen, this has been a very difficult year. Granted, none of us would have ever thought that 2020 would be what it has been, right? Some of us might be sad. Some of us might be sorrowful. Some of us might be discouraged, maybe disillusioned with various things that happened this particular year. Could it be, brothers and sisters, that some of us are dwelling in those particular ways, living in those things in a hopeless kind of way because we have lost sight of Jesus to some extent or another? Discouragement is a reality in life. Disillusionment is a reality in life. Sadness and sorrow, we see that all over the Psalms, that believers experience those things, but not in a hopeless, despairing kind of way, right? Ultimately, they came back to realizing that they could trust God who was faithful to His promises, and we can do the same thing, brothers and sisters. If Christmas reminds us of anything, is that Jesus is our high priest who has come to save us. He's our sin bearer. He's our wrath absorber. Trust Him. Rest on Him. Find refuge in Him. Enjoy all of the amazing food, right? All of the festivities, all of the family traditions that are pure and lovely and sweet that you're going to experience. Experience all the sweet fellowship with others. But can I encourage and challenge us that we do not forget that Christ is the one who gives true meaning and purpose to all of those things. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, You are a faithful God. What a reminder of the veracity, the truthfulness, and the credibility of Your Word that ultimately points to You, the character of the One who gave us Your Word. Father, thank You for Your faithfulness that from long ago, You are a God who takes pleasure, who delights in making Yourself known to us. And then thank you for the finality of your revelation through your Son. Thank you for Christ. Lord, help us to exalt him. Help us to make much of Jesus during this time so that people who do not know you might see the hope of Christ dwelling in us, in our disposition, in our words, in our actions, in our priorities. And the fact that, Lord, even we do not put our, fix our eyes on the materialism of this world, on the things that we do not have, on circumstances not being ideal, Lord, may people see us respond differently to those things. And even to this year of 2020 with all of its difficulties, so that as they see us respond differently and rejoice, they may ask, what is it that makes you different? And we can share Christ with them. Help us to do that. Help us to be on mission for the sake of the exaltation of your Son, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.